bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, September 13th, 2011. Today marks a milestone for the Tax Credit Tuesday podcasts. It's the 200th Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. I'd like to thank all our listeners for your interest in the podcast and for your continued support and listenership. I'd also like to encourage you to send me your thoughts about how we can improve the podcast in the future. That way, the next 200 podcasts can be even more relevant to you, the listener. Please email me your comments to cpas at novaco.com. I look forward to reading your suggestions. Now, I'll start this week's podcast with a review of President Obama's job proposals, as well as an update on tax patent legislation. Next, in our new market tax credit discussion, I'll discuss Senate Democrats' call to expand the new market tax credit. I will also share highlights from a new market tax credit coalition fact sheet about the new market tax credit's impact on job creation. I will also remind listeners about an important QEI issuance deadline, as well as summarize the provisions of the new Oregon State New Market Tax Credit. Then, in our long-closing tax credit discussion, I'll discuss HUD's announcement of the Multifamily Energy Efficiency Pilot Program. I'll also discuss the status of the White House Domestic Policy Council's Rental Alignment Initiative. Then, in our Renewable Energy Tax Credit section, I'll mention two new reports published by Standard & Poor's last week about the renewable energy industry. I'll also discuss a column written by Kansas Governor Sam Brownback, where he expresses his support for the Renewable Energy Production Tax Credit. And finally, in the Historic Tax Credit segment, I'll share two quick updates. First, on the status of the Historic Boardwalk Hall case, and second, on the special session in Missouri, where lawmakers will consider legislation to cap the state's historic tax credit. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, as listeners know, last week, President Barack Obama addressed a joint session of Congress and called on lawmakers to enact a package of proposals he says will boost the economy and reduce unemployment. The proposed American Jobs Act includes a combination of tax and spending provisions that the president said would be completely paid for. However, he did not specify last week how the approximate $450 billion cost would be covered. Rather, he called on the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, or Super Committee, to increase their goal for deficit reduction to a level high enough to offset the cost of the measures he proposed. He promised to release a detailed proposal for reaching that savings goal shortly. Yesterday, the president released the tax increases that would pay for the jobs cuts. The four key revenue-raising proposals are 1. Limit for taxpayers with gross incomes over $200,000 the value of certain itemized deductions. 2. Tax carried interests. 3. 
extended appreciation lives of corporate jets, and fourth, raise taxes on oil and gas companies. Now, there are several of the proposed tax incentive provisions, the job creation provisions of the proposed American Jobs Act, that are of interest to the tax credit community and to the business community in general. For example, the plan would extend through 2012 the 100% expensing provision that was signed into law in December 2010. The administration estimates that extending 100% expensing for an additional year would put an additional $85 billion in the hands of businesses in 2012. The provision would help many community development, affordable housing, and renewable energy projects. The cost of the provision is approximately $5 billion. The proposal also includes a number of tax provisions aimed at businesses. For example, the plan would cut in half a company's payroll tax on the first $5 million in payroll. If enacted, instead of paying 6.2% on their payroll expenses next year, firms would pay only 3.1%. In addition, the President proposed an incentive to encourage firms to hire additional employees or wage, raise wages for their current employees. The plan would completely refund payroll taxes paid on added workers or wage increases for current workers above the level of last year's payroll. To focus the benefit of this tax cut on small businesses, payroll tax relief would be capped, applying only to $50 million in new or higher wages. The first $50 million in new or higher wages. The cost of cutting employer payroll taxes in half and the bonus cut for new jobs and wages is estimated to be about $65 billion. The President's proposal also includes targeted hiring tax credits. There is a new Returning Heroes tax credit of up to $5,600. It would be allowed for employers who hire veterans who have been unemployed six months or longer. There would also be a Wounded Warriors tax credit of up to $9,600 that would increase the existing tax credit for firms that hire veterans with service-connected disabilities who have been unemployed six months or longer. In addition, the President proposes a $4,000 tax credit for hiring someone who is unemployed for six months or more. For employees, the proposal also calls for expanding the tax cut enacted in December by cutting employees' payroll taxes in half next year. Under the American Jobs Act, Rather than having 6.2% of their wages deducted in Social Security taxes, workers would pay only 3.1% next year. This extension would provide a payroll tax cut worth $179 billion to American workers in 2012. Turning to the spending side, the bill calls for $30 billion of investments in school infrastructure. Of the $30 billion, $25 billion would go to K-12 schools and $5 billion would be set aside for renovating community colleges. The President also called for the creation of an independent fund to attract private dollars at an estimated cost of $10 billion. The proposal is to create a national infrastructure bank, and it's based on the model that Senators Kerry and Hutchison have championed with bipartisan support in the Senate. While the fund would be a government-owned entity, It would not be controlled by any federal agency and instead would be operated independently. Eligible projects would include transportation infrastructure, water infrastructure, and energy infrastructure. In general, projects would have to be at least $100 million in size and be of national or regional significance. Projects would have a clear public benefit, 
meet economic, technical, and environmental standards, and be backed by a dedicated revenue stream. Geographic, sector, and size considerations would also be taken into account. The fund would issue loans and loan guarantees to eligible projects. Loans issued by the National Infrastructure Bank would use approximately the same interest rate as similar-length Treasury securities and could be extended up to 35 years. To maximize leverage from federal investments, the National Infrastructure Bank would finance no more than 50% of the total cost of any project. The plan also calls for $15 billion for an initiative called Project Rebuild. The administration says Project Rebuild would build on successful models piloted through the Neighborhood Stabilization Program. Key components of Project Rebuild are allowing grantees to rebuild and repurpose distressed commercial real estate, allowing federal funding to support for-profit development in certain circumstances, increasing support for land banking to help communities better handle distressed properties, and enabling grantees to use funds to establish property maintenance programs to create jobs and mitigate blight. In this speech, President Obama also pledged to overhaul the tax code as a way to reduce deficits and strengthen the economy. He repeated some common themes from recent months, including asking corporations and wealthy individuals to pay their fair share. On the corporate side, he again suggested that tax loopholes should be eliminated to lower the overall rate. Novogratz and Company has posted details about the proposed American Jobs Act online at www.novaco.com. I also invite you to send me your thoughts about the proposal or questions about its provisions. Comments and questions can be sent to cpas at novaco.com. Turning to legislative action, the Senate has sent a bill banning tax strategy patents to the President. Specifically, last week, the Senate voted 89-9 to approve patent reform legislation. H.R. 1249 bans the patenting of tax strategies. Under the bill, the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office would be prohibited from approving tax strategy patents, whether they are pending or future applications. The measure states that tax strategies are indistinguishable from prior art and therefore cannot be patented as a novel or non-obvious invention. A copy of H.R. 1249, the America Invents Act, can be found online at www.novaco.com. Simply click on the Hot Topics button. Turning to the IRS, on September 2nd, the Internal Revenue Service released an update to its Priority Guidance Plan. In Notice 2011-39, the IRS solicited suggestions from all interested parties, including taxpayers, tax practitioners, and industry groups. The 2011-2012 Priority Guidance Plan contains 317 projects that are priorities for allocation of the resources of the IRS's offices from July 2011 through June 2012. The plan represents projects that the IRS intends to work on actively throughout the plan year. It does not place any deadline, however, on completion of projects. Novogratz and Company is reviewing the document carefully, and I'll update you in next week's podcast with the specifics of the IRS's plan. I can tell you the plan does include projects related to low-income housing tax credits, new markets tax credits, and renewable energy tax credits. So, please tune in again next week. In new market tax credit news, last week, Senate Democrat Steering and Outreach Committee Chairman 
Senator Mark Begich called for President Barack Obama to expand the new market tax credit as part of his jobs initiative. Senator Begich says that expanding the new market tax credit is one of several job creation suggestions that he collected from meetings and conference calls with thousands of Americans so far this year. In a letter to the President, dated September 2nd, Senator Begich suggests that expanding the new market tax credit will encourage small businesses to expand, especially in rural areas and for native-owned businesses. As listeners know by now, unfortunately, expanding the new market tax credit was not one of the proposals put forward by President Obama in the American Jobs Act. Now, on the one hand, it's essentially impossible that the President's proposal would be passed exactly as is. So there is still a chance for other job-boosting provisions to be considered by Congress, and other provisions most certainly will be. However, that said, because of lawmakers' intense focus on the deficit, the cost of any provisions will be closely scrutinized. Now, part of the scrutiny will be each provision's impact on job creation. So the good news there is the New Market Tax Credit Coalition last week released a fact sheet that describes the New Market Tax Credit's impact on job creation and the economy. The fact sheet notes that between 2003 and 2009, the New Market Tax Credit has generated $50 billion, with a B, $50 billion in financing for projects in low-income communities. Moreover, a major focus of New Market Tax Credit investment is construction and substantial rehabilitation of real estate, which totaled $30 billion used for the construction, rehabilitation of manufacturing and industrial facilities, charter schools, community health centers, and mixed-use facilities. Now, the coalition reports that according to federal government estimates, $92,000 in financing creates one job. Total project costs for new market tax credit real estate totaling $30 billion means that some 300,000 construction jobs have been created through the new market tax credit. In addition, the coalition argues that the federal cost for creation of these jobs is low, approximately $8,000 in revenue foregone per job. A copy of the fact sheet is available online at www.newmarketscredits.com as well as nmtccoalition.org. We now have a reminder for New Market Tax Credit allocation applicants. Organizations that applied for the ninth round of New Market Tax Credits and that have previously received a New Market Tax Credit allocation are reminded that they have approximately one month left to meet the Qualified Equity Investment Threshold. In order to be eligible to apply for an allocation of New Market Tax Credit Authority in the 2011 round, applicants must have issued a requisite minimum amount of QEIs from their prior allocation by October 14th. The requirement may also apply if an applicant's affiliates have previously received a New Market Tax Credit allocation. A complete description of the issuance thresholds can be found in Section 3 of the Notice of Allocation Availability, or NOAA. A copy of the NOAA is available at www.newmarketscredits.com. Applicants are also reminded that the CDFI fund will only consider as issued those QEIs that have been recorded and finalized as opposed to listed as pending in the CDFI fund allocations tracking system. 
this is very, very important so your application for new market tax credits can continue to be considered. Questions about the QEI threshold can be directed to my partner Owen Gray in our San Francisco office or my partner Brad Elphick in our Atlanta office. Turning to the state level, some listeners may know that Oregon enacted a state version of the new market tax credit. In many ways, it is similar to the federal new market tax credit. For example, the non-refundable corporate excise tax credit is equal to 39% of a qualified equity investment in a low-income community business. However, it is relatively limited in its application. The total amount of the credits that can be claimed statewide in any tax year is limited to $16 million. The total amount of qualified investments in any business is limited to $4 million. Moreover, the enacting legislation, SB 817, bars businesses that, re- that receive more than 15% of their revenue from real estate from receiving the credit, which effectively eliminates the application of the program to real estate investments. The legislation also reserves 15% of the total amount of qualified equity investments for investments in qualified low-income community businesses that have a primary purpose of improving the environment or reducing emissions of greenhouse gases or produce goods that directly reduce emissions of greenhouse gases or are designed as environmentally sensitive replacements for projects in current use. The program goes into effect in about two weeks on September 29th. If you have questions about the new market tax credit in Oregon, please contact Nicola Pinoli in Novograd and Company's Portland office. In the local housing tax credit news, on September 2nd, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, or HUD, announced that $25 million is available through HUD's new Multifamily Energy Efficiency Pilot Program. HUD says the goal of the pilot program is to develop ideas and mechanisms that could potentially be replicated nationally, as well as help create industry standards in the home energy retrofit market. In addition, the pilot program will create a public-private partnership as a result of capital investments from private industries and create jobs in construction, property management, and technical analysis. HUD will make awards in two categories. One, financing demonstrations, and two, applied research demonstrations. Participation in the program requires that a successful applicant has matching funds to complement the grant funds. Applicants for the Applied Research Demonstrations category must demonstrate that they have acquired matching funds of at least $1 of private non-governmental capital for every $1 requested. Applicants for the Financing Demonstrations category must demonstrate that they have acquired matching funds of at least $2 of private non-governmental capital for every $1 of grant requested. And they'll be required to bring additional matching funds of $1 for every $1 loaned at the project level. Only certain types of entities are eligible to apply. There are four general categories of eligible applicants. They are, one, Certified Community Development Financial Institutions, or CDFIs, with Affordable Housing Development and Rehabilitation Programs. Two, National, Regional, or Local private or not-for-profit entities currently administering affordable housing development and rehabilitation programs, including technical assistance and capacity building programs, 
Such entities must manage or direct programs impacting a minimum of 1,000 units of affordable housing. Three, special purpose finance entities, such as housing trust funds, whose primary purpose is the preservation, rehabilitation, and or new construction of affordable rental housing serving low-income households. And four, not-for-profit or for-profit organizations and consortia thereof that own or control a portfolio of eligible multifamily properties. Such entities must manage or direct programs impacting a minimum of 1,000 units of affordable housing. The application deadline is Thursday, October 20th. So there's just over a month. Let's turn to a rental alignment initiative update. As you may have read in this month's Journal of Tax Credits, the White House's Domestic Policy Council has launched a physical inspection pilot program. The program's goal is to eliminate some of the conflicts and overlaps in rental housing programs, including the Long Housing Tax Credit Program, HUD Section 8 Program, and USDA programs. Now, the pilot program is part of a broader initiative to align federal rental program requirements. And, as part of program discussions, the Domestic Policy Council released for comment a set of conceptual proposals for streamlining rental housing programs. The administration believes that aligning the program's policies could alleviate some of the problems that developers encounter when they operate rental units that receive funding from multiple programs. In response to the comment request, the National Council of State Housing Agencies has submitted comments. In its letter, NCSHJ says that its recommended practices have helped rental housing developers meet various programs' requirements and hopes that the alignment initiative will build upon the recommended practices. Additionally, NCSHJ also addressed the Policy Council's specific conceptual proposals, specifically the increased burden that physical inspections from multi-funded properties could have on housing finance agencies. The group felt that it might be better for HUD to take the lead on multi-funded properties. It also suggested that the federal government extend a pilot inspection program to increase the number of inspections. It would also like the council to include the home program in the initiative. Now for income reporting, greater access to the Enterprise Income Verification System and further discussion of the issue. NCSHA would also like further discussion of the financial reporting requirements. It said that it does not support a single national standard of practice for market studies or energy efficiency. And additionally, NCSHA would like housing finance agencies involved in fair housing compliance enforcement and the sharing of owner default data. You can read NCSHA's comment letter online at www.ncsha.org. And if you haven't read Novogratz and Company's article about the pilot program, I encourage you to pick up the September issue of the Journal of Tax Credits. And if you'll be joining us at the 18th Annual Affordable Housing Tax Credit Conference this week in San Francisco, you'll find a copy of the journal with your conference materials. In addition to the article on the Rental Alignment Physical Inspection Program, Attendees will have access to articles on the creation of the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit Program, Year 15 issues, and more. And it's still not too late to join us at the conference if you're not already registered. Simply call 415-356-7970. I hope to see you at the conference. Turning to Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, 
Last week, Standard & Poor's rating services said that many dynamic and possibly conflicting factors are influencing the renewable energy industry. In this report, called Regulatory and Political Headwinds May Slow Renewable Energy Growth, the rating agency examines the political and demand factors that are affecting the renewable energy industry. For example, the agency notes that fiscal realities may hinder government support of renewable energy. S&P also says that the near-term outlook for the industry is unclear because solar panel and wind turbine prices have declined drastically, but demand has been slow to respond. In addition, the report suggests that expiring tax credits and subsidies also are significantly influencing the industry. In a separate report, also issued last week, Standard & Poor's said that future financing structures for renewable energy will be significantly different from what has been seen in the past. In the report, entitled U.S. Renewable Energy Financing Looks to a New Era, the agency says that because of various tax credit and subsidy expirations, renewable energy products will need to broaden and diversify their sources of capital to finance their projects. The agency says possible new financing structures include securitization of distributed generation, as well as the potential entry of non-financial players into the tax equity market, including master limited partnerships and REITs. The reports are available to subscribers of the agency's Ratings Direct service or for purchase on the S&P website. Now, speaking of expiring tax subsidies, last week, Kansas Governor Sam Brownback wrote a column for local news station KSAL that called for continued use of the Renewable Energy Production Tax Credit. Before becoming governor, Brownback served two terms as a United States Senator. In his column, Governor Brownback called for a balance between environmental concerns, economic benefits, and energy needs. He wrote that nationally, the U.S. has moved towards this balance by deploying tools such as tax incentives to support investment in renewable energy projects. Specifically, he noted that the wind energy industry has used the production tax credit, and he credited the production tax credit with helping the wind industry to see steady growth in the current decade. As such, he wrote, and I quote, I support the continued use of those tools as a way to spur investment in our communities and create sorely needed jobs. In historic tax credit news, we start with a hat tip to attorney Harold Burke for this week's first topic. The Third Circuit Court of Appeals last week issued an extension of 45 days for the IRS to file its opening brief in the historic Boardwalk LLC case. The IRS's opening brief in the case was originally due September 12th, yesterday. It's now due October 27th. A copy of the motion requesting the extension can be found online at www.historictaxcredits.com. The motion describes the IRS's reasons for requesting the extension as well as provides a brief description of the case itself. In state news, we have a Missouri update. A special legislative session was convened last week in Missouri, where the fate of the state's loan and historic tax credits remain uncertain. Senator Chuck 
Ferguson introduced a measure that would cap and eventually sunset the state's low-income housing tax credit and historic preservation tax credit programs. That legislation would also establish $360 million in tax credits for the Aerotropolis International Cargo Hub at Lambert St. Louis International Airport. Senate President Pro Tem Rob Mayer also filed a bill that reportedly parallels an agreement he struck this summer with House leaders. The St. Louis Post-Dispatch reports that this move allowed Mayer to sideline Senator Porgeson, who wanted to cut some development tax credits more than Mayer did. Senator Mayer's plan would cap historic preservation tax credits at $80 million a year with an additional $10 million for smaller projects. The state's long-opposing tax credit would be capped at $110 million a year. A debate on Senator Mayer's bill is scheduled for today, September 13th. We will continue to follow the developments in Missouri, and I'll report on the outcome in a future podcast. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. We didn't have time this week to cover two important topics, namely the Super Committee activities and the status of the federal government's budget for fiscal year in 2012, a budget that needs to be passed or a continuing resolution needs to be passed by the end of this month. We'll provide an update on these matters next week. As always, please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archive discussions are available online at www.novogratik.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik and Company LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novogratik.com.